0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the Hub of the Universe. This is Episode 248, Sailing Alone Around the World, Part 2. Hi I'm Jake. This week I'm continuing the story of Joshua Slocum and his solo circumnavigation of the globe which I began in the last episode. If you haven't listened to episode 247, hit pause now and go back and listen to it, because you're going to be confused otherwise. In this episode, we'll follow Captain Slocum as he builds the little sloop spray and hatches a plan to make money for his family by sailing alone around the world for the very first time. We'll follow his astounding path from Boston to the Rock of Gibraltar, back to South America, and through the months-long ordeal of the Straits of Magellan. We'll learn how he sailed thousands of miles across the South Pacific to Samoa without ever touching the wheel of the sloop, while his family worried that he'd perished at sea. And we'll follow him on his pilgrimage to the home of Treasure Island author Robert Louis Stevenson, his adventure in South Africa, and finally across the Atlantic and home, covering about 46,000 miles in three years, two months, and two days. But before we talk about Captain Slocum's adventures while sailing alone around the world, I just want to pause and thank everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. I'm hoping to transition the podcast to a new host this summer, one where I'm not going to run out of bandwidth as the audience continues to grow, and also one that gives me richer stats about who's listening to the show. Don't worry, I'm not going to get your personal information. It'll just be a better breakdown of what city you're listening from and what sort of apps and devices you use to listen. It's a big project and it's kind of intimidating to take on without doing anything to impact our current listeners. So I'm glad I can rely on our sponsors to handle the financials while I just focus on the logistics of the move. That consistency is the beauty of the loyal listeners who commit to giving as little as $2 on a monthly basis to support the show. To all existing sponsors, thank you and if you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start just go to patreon.com slash or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link and thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors and now it's time for this week's main topic when our last episode left off captain joshua slocum had buried his beloved first wife virginia near buenos aires returned to boston to grieve and met and married his second wife, Hetty. For their honeymoon, Hetty and two of Joshua's children joined him on a merchant cruise to Brazil that turned into a three-year ordeal that saw them getting shipwrecked, building their own oversized sailing canoe, and then sailing that boat, which was christened the la Verdade, back home. Captain Slocum published a book about their experience, while he and Hetty found themselves living just a few blocks apart in East Boston. The captain began dreaming of a new adventure, something involving small boat navigation and loneliness at sea. In the meantime, he took whatever jobs he could, mostly coasting jobs where he would haul small loads of coal or timber up and down the New England coast, working for wages when he had once owned his own magnificent barks and schooners, all the while casting about for the right small vessel that a lone man could pilot. Finally, in 1892, an old friend and whaling captain told him that he had just the right boat, and Slocum could have it for free, adding slyly that it might need a few repairs. It was probably kind of like seeing ran when parked in an ad for a used car today. Captain Slocum made haste to the south coast of Massachusetts, writing later, The next day, I landed at Fairhaven, opposite New Bedford, and found that my friend had something of a joke on me. For seven years, the joke had been on him. The ship proved to be a very antiquated sloop called the Spray, which the neighbors declared had been built in the year one. She was affectionately propped up in a field some distance from saltwater, and was covered with canvas. Seeing somebody take an interest in the old sloop, passerby asked him if he was there to break up the old boat for scrap, and he announced that he would rebuild her. When he was asked if that would pay, he grimly stated that he would make it pay. Then he got to work, writing, My axe felled a stout oak tree nearby for a keel, and Farmer Howard, for a small sum of money, hauled in this and enough timbers for the frame of the new vessel. I rigged a steam box and a pot for the boiler. The timbers for ribs, being straight saplings, were dressed and steamed till supple, and then bent over a log, where they were secured till set. Something tangible appeared every day to show for my labor, and the neighbors made the work sociable. During these long months of shipyard work, Joshua lived rent-free with an old sea captain friend in New Haven. His biographer Walter Magnus Teller says that Hetty visited him frequently on weekends, and that he often went into Boston to see her as well. It seems that their separation during this time was not one of malice. From his description of this work, it appears that Captain Slocum spent just as much time talking to the curious whalers who'd walk over from New Bedford as he actually did working on the spray. But the boat slowly took shape. As it neared completion, Slocum wrote, The spray's dimensions were, when finished, 36 feet 9 inches long overall, 14 feet 2 inches wide, and 4 feet 2 inches deep in the hold, her tonnage being 9 tons net and 12 and 71 hundredths tons gross. Then the mast, a smart New Hampshire spruce, was fitted, and likewise all the small appurtenances necessary for a short cruise. Finally, after many months of hard work, the completely rebuilt spray was launched, and Slocum noted proudly, As she rowed at her ancient, rust-eaten anchor, she sat on the water like a swan. In between his paying voyages, including one where he delivered a torpedo boat to the Brazilian Navy in the middle of a civil war that would be worthy of its own podcast, Captain Slocum began testing out his little sloop. He told the Boston Globe, in an article published under a Gloucester Dateline on July 15, 1893, that he was trying his hand at fishing. Captain Joshua Slocum of the Spray, a 40-foot sloop, is here for the purpose of going on a mackerel hooking trip. Captain Slocum hails from Fairhaven, where he built this craft during the winter. His crew consists of his son Garfield, aged 13 years. He was advised that Block Island is the best ground for a small boat to engage in this fishery, and will probably go there. Slocum would later write that, I spent a season in my new craft fishing on the coast, only to find that I had not the cunning properly to bait a hook. Despite that self-awareness, the captain was a cunning self-promoter. So in November of the same year, the Globe reported on a new method of fishing that he'd worked out during a season on the mackerel banks in the spray. The present season has been what may prove to be the beginning of the revival of the mackerel fishing industry. Mackerel, it is said, have been more than plenty on our coast during the past summer than for some years before. A correspondent of the Globe has visited the sloop spray of Fairhaven, commanded by Captain Joshua Slocum, whose home is in Boston. Captain Slocum has been following the fishing business during the past season, and has invented an apparatus for catching mackerel which has not only proved very effective, but shows the inventive genius of the hardy mariner. This apparatus consists of a long net, some 60 feet long by 40 in depth, and is suspended from the side of the sloop, one end being fastened to the outer end of the bowsprit and the other end secured to the davit at the stern. The net's heavily weighted to keep it in place while the vessel is drifting, and is let down beside and close to the hull of the vessel. Two long poles are run out horizontally from the vessel's side, one near the fore-rigging and the other at the stern, and ropes are led from the masthead to the outer end of these poles and thence to the corners of the net below the surface of the water. The vessel being hove to in the usual way, bait is thrown, as when fishing by hand lines. And when a good-sized school is alongside, the ropes from the masthead are pulled in, the net, which has been in a perpendicular position, is pulled out under them, and before they realize it, the fish are lifted clean out of the water and deposited upon the vessel's deck. If the quantity should be a large one, they are bailed from the net, the same as from the pocket of a seine. The net being lifted by its corners, of course, causes it to sag in the center, which makes a sack from which the mackerel cannot escape. Another novel feature of the apparatus is that in case the fish get on the wrong side of the net, that that's under the vessel's hull, it's only necessary to raise the net in the center and let the fish pass under it. Captain Slocum said that the mackerel did not show the slightest signs of fear. They played about the net, even picking bits of bait from its meshes while it was being lifted under them, and they were captured without the slightest difficulty. From the glowing accounts which the captain gave to his new invention, it would seem that it's destined to revolutionize the present methods of catching mackerel, and must indeed prove of interest to all connected with the fishing industries of New England. Captain Slocum says he will not seek to patent his invention, but would be content to give it a name. He proposes to call it the Spray Spring Net, and will claim no royalties for its use. Captain Slocum expects to spend the winter in southern waters, his first objective point being the West Indies. He will try for fish of various kinds, and may also secure a quantity of shells, sponges, and other marine curiosities which are so abundant in those waters. After a couple of seasons on the fishing banks, Joshua Slocum was ready to announce his plans to the world, and a Globe article about a week before his departure described the little spray and noted... Captain Joshua Slocum is the name of her builder, owner, skipper, crew, cook, and cabin boy. For on the greater part of this voyage, Captain Slocum will be alone. Unless, as he says, my wife changes her mind about staying ashore. This contingency the captain seems to regard as a remote one, however, for he is making all his preparations for a solitary voyage. His planned route seems to have been up in the air right up until his departure from Boston on April 24th, 1895, because he told the reporter who wrote that article that he was planning to sail straight to Panama and try to get the spray hauled across the isthmus and enter the Pacific Ocean that way. But a week later, when he departed, he said that he would be sailing the other way around the world, through the Mediterranean, the Suez Canal, and the Red Sea to the Indian Ocean beyond. Whichever route he took, the Globe article noted that the ship was well prepared for the adventure. She is most solidly built, with a white oak keel and frames and yellow planking, and her builder, who did all the work himself, can vouch for the faithfulness of the workmen. She does not leak a drop. Forward, she has a small forecastle with a couple of bunks, and aft, she has a comfortable cabin under a low house. The captain will make his berth in the cabin, and will cook, eat, and sleep there. The wheel is but a step aft in the companionway. The bulwarks are low, but a stout hard pine rail with stanchions gives a hold for the hands and affords support in a seaway. The spray will be thoroughly provisioned, and our captain will carry a revolver for armament. If he finds time for reading, he can turn to some convenient shelves in the cabin and will there find a set of Shakespeare, Macaulay's History of England, together with many lighter works, the gifts of his friends. In his cabin, too, were charts for all over the world, a sextant, compass, and chronometer. And as the captain is an expert navigator, and has already been around the world five times, he ought to be able to find his way. After showing off a little bit for the watching photographers as his solo voyage began from East Boston... Captain Slocum first set a course for Gloucester, to pick up the last of the supplies he'd need for an open ocean crossing. In his memoir of the voyage, he described how happy he was with the speed maneuverability of the spray on this first day of sailing, but also how nervous he was when it came time to take her into Gloucester Harbor all by himself. The bay was feather white as my little vessel tore in, smothered in foam. It was my first experience of coming into port alone with a craft of any size, and in among shipping. Old fishermen ran down to the wharf for which the spray was heading, apparently intent on braining herself there. I hardly know how a calamity was averted, but with my heart in my mouth almost, I let go of the wheel, stepped quickly forward, and down to the jib. The sloop naturally rounded in the wind, and just ranging ahead, laid her cheek against a mooring pile at the windward corner of the wharf so quietly, after all, that she would not have broken an egg. Very leisurely, I passed a rope around the post, and she was moored. Then a cheer went up from the little crowd on the wharf. "'You couldn't have done it better if you had weighed a ton,' cried an old skipper. Now, my weight was rather less than the fifteenth part of a ton, but I said nothing.' only putting on a look of careless indifference to say for me, oh, that's nothing, for some of the ablest sailors in the world were looking at me, and my wish was not to appear green, for I had a mind to stay in Gloucester several days. Had I uttered a word, it surely would have betrayed me, for I was still quite nervous and short of breath. The spray remained moored in Gloucester for almost two weeks, while our captain laid in dried cod, oil to calm the waves, a special lantern to help avoid collisions with larger craft, and a variety of fishing nets to help keep him fed on his journey. He also salvaged a castaway dory and cut it in half. The front half of the little rowboat, carefully patched and again watertight, was just the right size for one man to lift in and out of the water from the deck of the spray, and it would do double duty as a bathtub and washing machine when he wasn't using it to row to shore. The little sloop and its solitary captain got underway again on May 7th, with a wire service story stating that he was heading straight for South America and expected to get there in five weeks, while at the same time a globe story said that he was headed for Gibraltar. After leaving Gloucester, the spray stopped briefly in Maine, then again at Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, just a few miles down the coast from where the captain had grown up. Here, he bought some butter and potatoes for the voyage, as well as the cheap 10 clock that he would use for navigating the oceans of the world, instead of a more traditional chronometer. If you recall our episode about Boston Standard Time back in January 2020, calculating latitude could be done with a sexton, but longitude required an ultra-precise timepiece. To find his exact position on a map, Joshua Slocum would need to know both his latitude and longitude. The latitude, of course, is how far north or south you are relative to the equator, with lines of latitude circling the Earth parallel to the equator, while longitude is your position east or west around the globe, with lines of latitude circling the Earth in the other direction, and all intersecting with one another at the north and south poles. Because the system was laid out during the height of the British Empire, the Prime Meridian, the line of longitude that everything else is based on, runs through Greenwich, England. Finding latitude, assuming the navigator has the training and the necessary reference tables, is actually pretty simple. They simply measure the angle of the sun, stars, or other celestial bodies above the horizon when they reach their highest point. Take the North Star, for example. It remains within one degree of true north, so all you need to know is when it's reached its highest elevation of the night. When it's there, look directly ahead at the horizon, then tilt your head back until you're looking at the north star. If you tilted your head back at a 15 degree angle, your latitude's approximately 15 degrees north. Navigational tables and manuals give the calculations for using the sun or another star. And of course, when he was all alone out at sea, Captain Slocum would have used the sextant on the spray to shoot precise angles, rather than just tipping his head back and guessing. Longitude is a little more tricky. Calculating longitude also relies on measuring the angle of the north star's highest point. For longitude, though, a second angle must be taken to a star directly on the eastern or western horizon. Again, navigational tables give you the calculation to turn these two numbers into a longitude. However, in this case, there's a catch. The Earth spins at a thousand miles an hour, so the navigational tables have to be adjusted for the local time. For this to work, the navigator must have an incredibly accurate timepiece known as a chronometer. And all Slocum had was the old tin clock that he purchased in Nova Scotia. So he'd have to rely on dead reckoning for much of his navigation. In a 2001 article called Adventures in Celestial Navigation, Philip Gerard writes, Dead reckoning has nothing to do with mortality. The dead comes from deduced, what you think you know based on history, the history of the boat you're sailing in, where she was when you last knew for sure, how fast she's been moving since, and in what direction. You draw a line along your true course to reflect that projected path. Five hours, say, at six knots, equals 30 nautical miles of distance along that course line from your last known position. You don't know yet what the tidal set and the currents have done to her, or leeway, her tendency to slide a little sideways as she moves forward, as we all do. Using a sextant and ten clock, Captain Slocum could shoot his azimuths and largely confirm his position. But without a chronometer, his longitude would always be approximate. As Gerard points out, seconds matter, and navigation, time means distance in all sorts of ways. Four seconds error in recording time results in an east-west position error of a whole nautical mile. The ten clock could just not be counted on for that level of accuracy, especially as months eventually turned to years and the voyage continued. For now, though, the voyage was just getting started. It was only when Captain Slocum departed Nova Scotia and headed out across the open Atlantic that his adventure truly began, and his memoir records this moment. On July 1st, after a rude gale, the wind came out of northwest and clear, propitious for a good run. On the following day, I sailed from Yarmouth and let go my last hold on America. The log of my first day on the Atlantic in the spray reads briefly, 9.30 a.m., sailed from Yarmouth, 4.30 p.m., past Cape Sable, distance three cables from the land, the sloop making eight knots, fresh breeze to northwest. On this first leg of the journey over open ocean, the captain learned that he could set a course, lash the wheel of the sloop fast, and go to sleep, and the boat would hold a true course. He learned that being alone sometimes meant loneliness, especially when he was alone with his thoughts at night, and he wrote, During these days a feeling of awe crept over me. My memory worked with startling power. The ominous, the insignificant, the great, the small, the wonderful, the commonplace all appeared before my mental vision in magical succession. Pages of my history were recalled that had been so long forgotten that they seemed to belong to a previous existence. When he was working hard to trim the sails, set the tiller, and keep the sloop running true, he was too busy to be lonesome, he took up singing while he worked, to further distract his mind from memory. From time to time, other ships broke up the monotony, and he always traded news with anyone who came within hailing distance. A Spanish captain even sent him over a nice bottle of wine, rigged to a rope between the vessels. Any westbound ships he conversed with sent word to Boston of his progress when they arrived in the Americas. So readers of the Boston Globe already knew that he was headed for Gibraltar and not directly to Brazil by the time Joshua Slocum finally reached European shores. When he did finally arrive at the legendary British fortification at the mouth of the Mediterranean, Captain Slocum wrote in an article for the Boston Globe in October 1895, August 4th, the spray arrived at Gibraltar at about 3 p.m and came to under the lee and protection of the famous rock, having made the voyage in 32 days from Boston, 29 days from Cape Sable. With even 19 hands on board, the spray would not have come more quickly. The sloop had left Boston in April and Nova Scotia on July 1st, so those times are exaggerated, but that doesn't diminish Joshua Slocum's accomplishment in navigating the high seas alone. The British officers manning the defenses at Gibraltar seemed to appreciate Captain Slocum's daring do, and they whined and dined him for twenty straight days. They also gave him intelligence about the conditions that lay ahead, convincing him that discretion was the better part of valor, and that the best approach would be to turn back and round the world in the other direction. The reason? Pirates. In an account of his time at Gibraltar, published in the Globe on August 24th, the captain wrote, The spray is turned back from the Mediterranean and Red Sea to breast the Atlantic again. All on account of pirates and being herself unarmed. Naval officers of experience have given me advice that I cannot make light of. And Captain Ketchin, here on the Vanderbilt, tells me that he wouldn't go through the Red Sea in a small vessel unarmed for a million pounds. Quite a large sum. It is a hard commentary on the cradle of civilization. The spray will come through the Red Sea, dangers to navigation accepted and life and health spared, but will come prepared. At present, she's only equipped for the elements. It is with great reluctance that I change the course from the Red Sea to the South Atlantic Ocean. Were the spray sufficiently armed, she would not take water for all the pirates on the coast of Arabia. I was not aware till my arrival here that piracy is still carried on, but I'm assured by the best authority that on the coast of Morocco and in the Red Sea, it's as bad as ever in the world. This being the case, it's only prudent to go around outside, although it is a long way, so instead of a camel for a Christmas drive in the Torrid zone, I will, if all goes well, be on the spray in the latitudes of ice and whales. The old man is not afraid of the pirates, but he doesn't want to lose the spray. On August 25th, he left Gibraltar again, heading west. This time, he set a course for South America, making smooth progress for about the first three weeks. Then, on September 16th, the spray entered the doldrums, a belt extending about five degrees on either side of the equator, where the prevailing winds from each hemisphere collide with one another and fall silent. Without wind to fill his sails, and lashed by rain, the spray spent about nine days lumbering slowly forward, occasionally trading signals with passing steamers. Finally, a day or two after drifting across the equator, the wind returned, and the captain noted in his memoir, The southeast trade winds, met rather light and about four degrees, gave her sails now a stiff full." sending her handsomely over the sea towards the coast of Brazil, where, on October 5th, without further incident, she made the land, casting anchor in Pernambuco Harbor about noon, forty days from Gibraltar and all well on board. Did I tire of the voyage in all that time? Not a bit of it. I was never in better trim in all my life, and I was eager for the more perilous experience of rounding the horn. In his merchant days, the captain had made so many voyages to Pernambuco that he knew it probably better than any other city. He spent almost 20 days in the city, visiting friends and buying supplies. On October 24th, he left his home away from home for Rio, where the spray arrived on November 5th. Throughout the journey up to this point, Captain Slocum had been sending letters home while he was in port, and occasionally filing stories about his adventures that ran in the Boston Globe and other papers, some of which I've quoted. But after leaving Pernambuco for Rio, he fell silent. While in the capital city, he tried to get the Brazilian government to pay him for delivering that torpedo boat to their navy the previous year. But the effort was unsuccessful. Knowing that the most dangerous stretch of sailing lay ahead— Either by traversing the Strait of Magellan or rounding Cape Horn from the Atlantic into the Pacific, Captain Slocum also decided to re-rig the Spray while he was in Rio. In his memoir, he describes the change and the backseat drivers who helped him. The Spray, with a number of old shipmasters on board, sailed about the harbor of Rio the day before she put to sea. As I had decided to give the Spray a yawl rig for the tempestuous waters of Patagonia, I here placed on the stern a semicircular brace to support a jigger mast. These old captains inspected the spray's rigging, and each one contributed something to her outfit. Captain Jones, who had acted as my interpreter at Rio, gave her an anchor. One of the steamers gave her a cable to match it. She never dragged Jones's anchor once on the voyage, and the cable not only stood the strain on a lee shore, but when towed off Cape Horn, helped break the combing seas astern that threatened a border. When Joshua Slocum sailed the little spray out of Rio de Janeiro on November 28th, he knew that making the Pacific would be hard, but he probably didn't suspect that it would take him almost five months. That time would be full of challenges, many of them life-threatening, from navigational hazards to storms to pirates— To questionable encounters with the indigenous residents of the Chilean headlands. The first setback came on December 11th, when he ran aground on a sandbar in the middle of the night, just after crossing the border from Brazil to Uruguay. In the aftermath, he almost drowned while using his little half-dory to row an anchor out to deeper water in an attempt to haul himself off the bar, and he almost lost all his gear to locals who thought the spray was fair game for salvage. The next morning, though, he was able to float the spray again, with the help of a German farmer, a Uruguayan soldier, and an Italian sailor. And with the additional help of a local coastguardsman, he was able to round up almost all of his gear and provisions that had attempted to grow legs during the night. The ship was repaired at the Uruguayan port of Maldonado, and then further at Montevideo, before spending some days in Buenos Aires catching up with an old captain friend of Slocum's and perhaps making a pilgrimage to Virginia's grave. He celebrated Christmas in Montevideo and New Year's at Buenos Aires, making further repairs to the spray in the latter city, as he noted in his memoir, I unshipped the sloop's mast at Buenos Aires and shortened it by seven feet. I reduced the length of the bowsprit by about five feet, and even then I found it reaching far enough from home, and more than once, when on the end of it reefing the jib, I regretted that I had not shortened it by another foot. It was January 26, 1896, when the spray slipped out of Buenos Aires and headed south. Joshua Slocum would never visit the city in his great love's resting place again. Soon, he'd be faced with the choice between rounding Cape Horn and sailing through the Drake Passage which was lashed with gales and uncomfortably close to Antarctica, or navigating the Straits of Magellan, an inland passage that was hundreds of miles shorter and more sheltered from the Antarctic winds, but made up of a confusing network of convoluted and narrow channels, some no more than a mile wide. Would he risk polar storms on the open ocean, or risk getting lost and running the spray aground again in the labyrinth of the Straits? For over two weeks, he sailed through fearsome storms just to reach Cape Virgins, the entrance to the Straits of Magellan, and the beginning of the truly difficult sailing. On February 11th, Captain Slocum steered the little spray into the narrow strait, threading the needle between two enormous standing waves as the tide rushed through the narrow channel. That night, a storm blew in and continued to lash the spray for 30 hours during which time the little boat barely avoided being blown backwards out of the straits, or, worse, dashed upon the rocks on either side. The spray and its captain avoided disaster, however, with Slocum writing, After this gale followed only a smart breeze, and the spray, passing through the narrows without mishap, cast anchor at Sandy Point on February fourteenth, eighteen 1896. The port that he tied up in, coincidentally on my birthday, was a coaling station now known as Punta Arenas, operated by the Navy of Chile, which had only recently claimed sovereignty over the straits from Argentina. His description continues, Sandy Point boasts about 2,000 inhabitants of mixed nationality but mostly Chileans. What with sheep farming, gold mining, and hunting, the settlers in this dreary land seemed not the worst off in the world. But the natives, Patagonian and Fuegan on the other hand, were as squalid as contact with unscrupulous traders could make them. Slocum's descriptions of indigenous people he met in all corners of the world are shot through with the casual racism of his era, and the Patagonians fared no better or worse than any others. Biographer Teller describes the warning that Slocum got about the indigenous people whose lands lay ahead, and his reaction to it. The port captain at Sandy Point advised Slocum to ship a few hands to fight off Indians further west in the strait. But since no one cared to join him, Slocum loaded his guns instead. At this point, an older sea captain stepped forward. Captain Pedro Samblick a good Austrian of large experience, presented Slocum with a bag of carpet tacks. You must use them with discretion, Samblick said to Slocum. That is to say, don't step on them yourself. Slocum got the message and, as he wrote, saw the way to maintain clear decks at night without the care of watching. The idea was that if you covered the deck in carpet tacks anyone who planned to board the spray under cover of darkness would get a foot full of tacks. Five days after blowing into Sandy Point, the spray blew back out again on February 19th. The next day, he turned 52 years old as he was fighting a new type of windstorm, known locally as the Williwa's. The weather continued for three days, and as soon as it broke, Slocum claimed to have been pursued by several canoes of local indigenous people. His description of this pursuit in his memoir uses such offensive language that it doesn't even bear repeating here. Suffice it to say that the captain fired several warning shots into and around the canoes, and they left off the chase. The extreme weather of the Cape region, being so close to Antarctica, continued to batter the spray in her lonely captain. By March 3rd, the sloop had reached the mouth of the strait on the Pacific side, but there she met a storm stronger than any other she had survived so far. Walter Magnus Teller wrote, He had scarcely entered the Pacific Ocean when the wind hauled northwest and turned into a very hard gale. The same wind, which 400 years before, had driven Drake south to discover Cape Horn. Slocum could not hold his westward course. The spray, her sails blown to ribbons, ran before the wind. Under bare poles, she headed southeast as though she would round the Horn and carry Slocum back into the Atlantic. On the fourth day of the gale, Slocum believed he was nearing the point of Cape Horn. Through a rift in the clouds, he saw a mountain which he took for the Cape. That decided him to backtrack and go to the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic to refit. He headed east. Actually, however, he was still a hundred miles north of the Cape. And instead of rounding it, he was fetching in towards the Cockburn Channel, one of the many arms of the strait. Night closed in before the sloop reached land, leaving her feeling the way in the pitchy darkness, he wrote. Hail and sleet and the fierce squalls cut my flesh till the blood trickled over my face. But what of that? It was daylight, and the sloop was in the midst of the milky way of the sea and it was the white breakers of a huge sea over sunken rocks which had threatened to engulf her through the night. It was Fury Island I had sighted and steered for. God knows how my vessel escaped. After this mishap, the Cockburn Channel dumped the spray back into the strait, at a point that it had already passed weeks before. It hauled up at Cape Froward, just a few miles from Sandy Point, where the perilous crossing had begun. While moored at Froward, the captain was able to put the carpet taxi he had picked up weeks before into use, writing, Here I pondered on the events of the last few days, and strangely enough, instead of feeling rested from sitting or lying down, I now began to feel jaded and worn. But a hot meal of venison stew soon put me right so that I could sleep. As drowsiness came on, I sprinkled the deck with tacks, and then I turned in. Bearing in mind the advice of my old friend Samblick that I was not to step on them myself, I saw to it that not a few of them stood business end up. As this description continues, keep in mind what I said before about Slocum's writing being steeped in the racism of his day. It is well known that one cannot step on a tack without saying something about it. A pretty good Christian will whistle when he steps on the commercial end of a carpet tack. A savage will howl and claw the air. And that was just what happened that night, about twelve o'clock, while I was asleep in the cabin, where the savages thought they had me, sloop and all, but changed their minds when they stepped on deck, for then they thought that I or somebody else had them. I had no need of a dog. They howled like a pack of hounds. I had hardly a use for a gun. They jumped pell-mell, some into their canoes, and some into the sea, to cool off, I suppose. And there was a deal of free language over it as they went. I fired several guns when I came on deck to let the rascals know that I was home, and then I turned in again, feeling sure that I should not be disturbed anymore by people who left in so great a hurry. After all that, Another storm blew in while the captain was trying to sew new sails out of the tarps he had on board, and pushed him all the way back to Sandy Point, where he arrived on March 12th. Three weeks of sailing had landed him back exactly where he started. Instead of making for port and paying to outfit the spray again, Joshua Slocum finished stitching his tarpaulin sails, hauled them up, and turned the bow to the west again. By the first week of April, the spray was anchored in the harbor at Puerto Angosto, the last relatively calm port, before the straits opened back up on the Pacific. At about this time, Bostonians got their first update from the captain since he left Pernambuco, Brazil, in late October. It had been long enough that some people had begun to worry that he was lost. However, on April 3rd, 1896, the Globe carried a brief piece on Slocum's progress though it was second-hand and already almost two months old. Captain Joshua Slocum, who sailed from East Boston on April 24, 1895, for a voyage around the world, has been heard from by a Boston man. On February 16th, the doughty Captain was at Sandy Point in the Straits of Magellan. Captain Slocum is circumnavigating the globe alone in the 40-foot sloop spray. After a tempestuous voyage across the Atlantic, he reached Pernambuco, Brazil on October 5th. That was the last heard of him until the letter just received in Boston. He says he has had a rough experience since he left Pernambuco. It was his intention, so the letter stated, to proceed to Sydney, Australia, to stop at Tahiti and the Society Islands, and also at lonely Pitcairn Island, and then to go to the Sandwich Islands. In the days that followed, the captain made six attempts to break through the tides and winds into the Great South Pacific. The seventh time, on April 13, 1896, he was successful. Just over a week later, the little sloop spray broke out into the Great Pacific, finally landing in the Juan Fernandez Islands, about 400 miles off the Pacific coast of Chile and almost halfway up the South American landmass, on April 27th. It had been six months since he had communicated with anyone back home, but the very first group of locals he talked to had heard about his voyage. In his memoir, Captain Slocum wrote, One of the party, whom the rest called King, spoke English. The others spoke Spanish. They had all heard of the voyage of the spray through the papers of Valparaiso, and were hungry for news concerning it. They told me of a war between Chile and the Argentines, which I had not heard of when I was there. About 45 people lived on the island, and there was no telegraph line or regular postal service to mainland Chile, but the captain left word that any Boston-bound ships should tell people that he was all right. Before he left, he visited the cave of Robinson Crusoe, a fictional character, and a lookout used by Alexander Selkirk a real-life castaway had spent four years on the island in total solitude before being picked up by a passing ship. He also enlisted the children of the island in helping him restock, taking them into the woods where they helped him gather figs, peaches, and quinces for the upcoming voyage. He paid a local woman in Tallow to sew new sails for the spray, filled his casks of water, and on May 5th, just about a year since he left the U.S. behind at Gloucester, he sailed north out of the Juan Fernandez Islands in search of the trade winds. Slocum had to sail the little sloop considerably further north than he had expected to find the trades, but when he did, they were off to the races. The spray raced west as though shot out of a gun, passing the Marquesas Island group on the 43rd day without so much as slowing down. During this period, Captain Slocum says that the sloop sailed straight and true for an entire month without needing a hand on the tiller. When he passed the Marquesas, the captain got out all of his celestial navigation gear and his old ten clock, and painstakingly calculated his position by shooting the moon with his sextant and consulting his lunar tables. In the end, his calculated position was only five miles from the point he had arrived at by dead reckoning. He was even able to detect an error in a logarithm in one of his tables. With such favorable winds, the spray bypassed the Marquesas, and our captain set his sights on Samoa. In the meantime, the captain later wrote, I sat and read my books, mended my clothes, or cooked my meals and ate them in peace. I had already found that it was not good to be alone, and so I made companionship with what there was around me sometimes with the universe, and sometimes with my own insignificant self. But my books were always my friends, let fail all else. Nothing could be easier or more restful than my voyage in the trade winds. He listened to passing whales, shot every shark he saw with his revolver, and gathered flying fish from the spray's decks for breakfast in the morning. Finally, the captain of the spray caught sight of land again. It was Samoa, and this time the captain stopped, coming into the harbor at Apia on July 16th. His run from Juan Fernandez had taken 72 days, during which time he had not seen a single person, not a distant sail, or, for the first 43 days until passing the Marquesas, not even a distant island during the daytime or a faint light at night. In his memoir, Joshua Slocum wrote effusively about Samoan culture, like the customs surrounding work, meals, gift-giving, and more. He marveled at the lack of materialism on the island, at least compared to what he was used to in Boston. Apio was a large enough town to have a newspaper, and the newspaper was part of a wire service so the world could read, in a story filed July 25th. On examining the spray's charts, our reporter traced the course of the vessel from Cape Sable to Gibraltar, thence via Canary and Cape Verde Islands to Pernambuco, the nearest point of the northwest of the South American continent, thence to Rio de Janeiro, Montevideo, Buenos Aires, and Sandy Point, then through the Straits of Magellan, up the west coast of the continent to the island of Juan Fernandez, thence to Samoa. We claim that Captain Slocum is as great a man in his generation as the immortal Columbus was in the past, and should he succeed in accomplishing his task, of which we have but little doubt and for which he has our best wishes, he will stand singularly alone in his department as the great 19th century exponent of pluck, self reliance, and indomitable energy and perseverance. This publicity and promotion was priceless not only for telling his friends and family back home in Boston that he was still alive, but also, by raising his notoriety in the profile of his voyage, he hoped to increase demand for the book he had committed to writing about the trip. Think of this coverage as the viral marketing campaign of its time. But Captain Slocum had sailed for Samoa for more than just press coverage and relaxation. He was also there to make a pilgrimage. A few months before he left Boston, the death of the novelist Robert Louis Stevenson had been reported during the week of Christmas, 1894. The author of Kidnapped and Treasure Island had inspired a generation of children to look to the sea for adventure, and Slocum may have seen himself as following in the old writer's footsteps. In his memoir, Slocum described how, the day after the spray anchored in Apia, the writer's widow Fanny introduced herself. Next morning, bright and early, Mrs. Robert Louis Stevenson came to the spray and invited me to Velima the following day. I was, of course, thrilled when I found myself, after so many days of adventure, face-to-face with this bright woman, so lately the companion of the author who had delighted me on the voyage. The kindly eyes that looked me through and through sparkled when we compared notes of adventure. I marveled at some of her experiences and escapes. She told me that, along with her husband, she had voyaged in all manner of rickety craft among the islands of the Pacific, reflectively adding, Our tastes are similar. Following the subject of voyages, she gave me the four beautiful volumes of sailing directories for the Mediterranean, writing on the flyleaf of the first, To Captain Slocum. These volumes have been read and reread many times by my husband and I am very sure that he would be pleased that they should be passed on to the sort of seafaring man that he liked above all others. Fanny V D E G Stevenson Mrs. Stevenson also gave me a great directory of the Indian Ocean. It was not without a feeling of reverential awe that I received the books. The Stevenson family invited Slocum to visit their home, and even told him to seat himself at the old writer's desk to write his correspondence. They toured the town with him, and Fanny joined the captain in his tiny half-dory for a tour of the spray, with the captain noting, The adventure pleased Mrs. Stevenson greatly, and as we paddled along, she sang, They went to sea in a pea-green boat. I could understand her saying of her husband and herself, Our tastes were similar. Much as he appears to have enjoyed his time in Samoa, and who can blame him? another commitment was weighing on Joshua Slocum's mind. Finally, after a little more than a month on the Enchanted Island, Teller's biography describes how he left Samoa and arrived down under. On the 20th of August, 1896, Slocum weighed anchor and the spray stood out to sea. Feeling very lonely as the islands receded and faded, Slocum resorted to his old remedy, making himself as busy as possible. He crowded on sail and steered for lovely Australia, with its memories of 25 years before. Virginia's kin waited to welcome him, but again, not a word of Virginia got into his book. In Sailing Alone Around the World, he wrote only that Australia was not a strange land to him. Another 42 days of sailing, much of it through storms and gales, carried him over the international dateline, clear across the South Pacific to Newcastle, New South Wales. Slocum arrived at Newcastle, quote, in the teeth of a gale of wind, early in October. Almost a year and a half had elapsed since he last saw Boston. He was halfway around the world. He had already accomplished what no sailor known to history had done before. On October 1st, the Boston Globe reported that the spray had arrived in Australia the day before. And as a reminder of what the sloop looked like, after all, it had been absent from Boston Harbor for a year and a half, the paper printed the etching of the spray sailing out of Boston Harbor again. There in Australia, the local papers had already been publishing the dispatches that Slocum filed along his way, and they gushed when he arrived in their harbor, with the Sydney Morning Herald writing, Captain Slocum is hailed everywhere as a worthy descendant of an illustrious line of sea kings, and so probably it will be to the end of time. The highest intellectual development is not likely ever to lessen the delight which we all natural feel in stirring action, and worthy deeds worthily carried to an end. Slocum proceeded to Sydney on October 10th, and moved on to Melbourne on December 6th. His beloved first wife Virginia isn't mentioned in the book that resulted from the trip, but one has to imagine that the time spent with her family was bittersweet. It was a fine summer in the Southern Hemisphere, and Slocum had time to kill while he waited for the winds to turn. He spent some time exploring Tasmania, and he didn't seem at all rushed. Probably because he was making money, as Teller points out. In Australia, Slocum learned to show off the spray in Tasmania, had a lecture. The spray returned to Sydney from Tasmania on April 22, 1897, just two days short of two years since sailing out of Boston Harbor. On May 9, he headed north up the Australian coast in search of a wind that would carry him safely through the Torres Strait between Australia and Papua New Guinea. At this point, he lost contact with Boston again though it took some time to fully leave Australia behind. By July 2nd, he had passed the island of Timor to the north, while the coast of Australia began dropping away to the south. The spray and its captain island hopped across the Indian Ocean, touching sometimes on uninhabited atolls, sometimes staying a few days in small villages, and always topping up the water casks and taking on as much produce as the sloop could hold. The going was slow, however, and the captain had not been diligent about communicating with his family back home. Some accounts say that the last time he sent word home was upon arriving in Australia in October 1896. So when no further news was received by September 1897, his family feared the worst. Then, finally, a wire service story announced to the world, The Little Yacht Spray in which Captain Joshua Slocum is voyaging, has been heard of again. This time, it is at Port Louis, Mauritius. Many months ago, the spray touched at Samoa and at Australia, and her daring captain then sailed boldly out into the open ocean again. When Captain Slocum was not heard from after a reasonable length of time, his relatives in Massachusetts gave him up for lost. But it seems that the seas were propitious as a dispatch under the date of September 22nd states that the spray has arrived at Port Louis. The captain had nearly completed his crossing of the Indian Ocean. From Mauritius, he planned to cross to Madagascar and follow the African coast down, around the Cape of Good Hope, and into the Atlantic once more. However, before any of that could happen, he had to wait again for a season with favorable weather, since September was still late winter or early spring there. In the month when he tarried at Meridius, a local botanist named a newly discovered species of flower, Slocum, in honor of their shared hardiness. Leaving this island haven on October 26th, he passed Reunion Island, navigated toward Madagascar, then turned down the Mozambique Channel, and finally arrived in what was then called Port Natal, and is now Durban, South Africa, on November 7th. A harbor pilot in a steam tug led the spray-in across the bar, but she went under her own power, and with Slocum at the helm, who wrote, It was blowing a smart gale and was too rough for the slope to be towed with safety. The trick of going in I learned by watching the steamer. It was simply to keep on the windward side of the channel, and take the comers end on. An article about his arrival from the Natal Advertiser was reprinted around the world, stating, The Spray, with a crew of one man, Captain Joshua Slocum, arrived at this port yesterday afternoon on her cruise around the world. The Spray made quite an auspicious entrance to Natal. Her commander sailed his craft right up the channel, past the main wharf and St. Paul's wharf, and chopped anchor near the old forerunner and the creek, before anyone had a chance to get aboard. The Spray was naturally an object of great curiosity to the point people and her arrival was witnessed by a large crowd. The skillful manner in which Captain Slocum steered his craft about the vessels which were occupying the waterways was a treat to witness, and when the spray was at last hove to, a hearty cheer greeted the daring mariner. Captain Slocum took a fairly leisurely break in Natal, introducing himself to everyone from the colonial governor to the famous explorer Stanley of Dr. Livingston, I presume, fame. That's that's a doctor. Go ahead, ask him. You really think I should, Bert? After all this time? That could be the wrong doctor, Bert. Will you please go ahead? Okay, okay, okay. (gasps) Hurry. Uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Yes. Sam Livingston, jungle doctor. Yes. Oh, we found him. We found him at last. We've come hundreds of miles through the hot, steaming jungle, hungry, thirsty, tired. Ask him. Just ask him. Okay. Uh, uh, Dr. Livingston. Yes. uh, We've come a hundred miles through the steaming jungle. Just to ask you one question. What is it? Here it comes. What's up, doc? Finally, he headed out again on December 14th with only one major obstacle standing between himself and home, which he hadn't seen in two and a half years. He would still have to navigate the treacherous, stormy, and shark-filled waters around the Cape of Good Hope, the southernmost point in the African continent. After the drama of a months-long attack on the Straits of Magellan to around South Africa, the spray's passage around the Cape of Good Hope is almost anticlimactic. In his account, the captain recorded, On Christmas 1897, I came to the pitch of the cape. On this day, the spray was trying to stand on her head, and she gave me every reason to believe that she would accomplish the feat before night. She began very early in the morning to pitch and toss about in a most unusual manner. And I have to record that while I was at the end of the bowsprit, reefing the jib, she ducked me under the water three times for a Christmas box. I got wet and did not like it a bit. Never in any other sea was I put under more than once in the same short space of time, say three minutes. A large English steamer passing ran up the signal, wishing you a Merry Christmas. I think the captain was a humorist. His own ship was throwing her propeller out of the water. Despite a good soaking, Slocum and the spray arrived safe and sound in Cape Town by the first week of January 1898. You'd expect the captain to make a quick turnaround and race for home, in hopes of making it before the third anniversary of his departure. Instead, he put the spray into dry dock for an overhaul, and went out on an extended tour of the colony. For three whole months, he took trains to Pretoria, Kimberley, and Johannesburg. He viewed African wildlife from a safe distance, and he argued with government officials who were convinced that he was lying about the purpose of his voyage because everyone knows that the world is flat after all. For a colony that would find itself embroiled in an imperial war in less than a year, their second in a decade, they extended a warm welcome to the American captain. After all, when you haven't seen your wife and kids for two and a half years, what's a few more months? Slocum finally departed South African waters on March 26, 1898 writing that he spent nearly all day every day the next few weeks devouring the new books that had been added to his onboard library by the British colonizers in South Africa. When he needed to rest his eyes or clear his head, he would come out on deck and watch the seals, dolphins, and flying fish frolicking around the spray. Sailing before the wind, this was another stretch of ocean where he barely had to touch the wheel for thousands of miles at a time. Adjusting his course only after spending a week exploring the island of St. Helena, where Napoleon had been exiled. Here, the governor gave him the gift of a goat for both companionship and food, but the animal ate his ropes and navigational charts, two items of utmost importance to a solo circumnavigator. He couldn't bring himself to kill it for food, writing, I found myself in no mood to make one life less in the world, except in self-defense. And as I sailed, this trait of the hermit character grew, till the mention of killing food animals was revolting to me. However, while I may have enjoyed a chicken stew afterward at Samoa, a new self rebelled at the thought suggested there of carrying chickens to be slain for my table on the voyage. To kill the companions of my voyage and eat them would be, indeed, next to murder and cannibalism. He visited Ascension Island in the middle of the Atlantic, marooning his goat ashore there, and moved on after only three days with Teller writing, Three days at Ascension were enough. Slocum had reached the backstretch. The voyage was speeding up. Passing at night south of Fernando de Noronha, a Brazilian island group 200 miles offshore, the spray crossed the track homeward bound that she had made on the voyage out. Though still in the South Atlantic and 4,000 miles from home, Slocum had come full circle. Once more, the old familiar waters. Breezing along the coast of Brazil, the spray sailed where the Aquidnik and the Liridat had left their tracks. Strange and long forgotten current ripples pattered against the sloop's sides in grateful music. I sat quietly listening. He wrote. The spray crossed the equator on May 14th, and on the 18th, Captain Slocum wrote in the ship's logbook Tonight, in latitude 7 degrees 13 minutes north, for the first time in nearly three years, I see the North Star. He was so close to home he could almost taste it. He island hopped through the Caribbean, writing what were probably charming descriptions in his own era of the people he met along the way but are now so virulently racist that I found them hard to read. On June 5th, the spray left the Caribbean islands behind, turning out to sea from Antigua as her captain set a course for home, hoping at first to make landfall at Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, then changing his mind along the way and heading for New York City. The little spray would face one more trial before her voyage was over, almost within sight of the New York skyline with her captain writing, Day and night I worked the sloop in toward the coast, where, on the 25th of June, a fire island, she fell into the tornado, which an hour earlier had swept over New York City, with lightning that wrecked buildings and sent trees flying about in splinters. It was the climax storm of the voyage. The sloop shivered when it struck her, and she heeled over unwillingly on her beam ends, but rounding to... With a sea anchor ahead, she righted and faced out the storm. In the midst of the gale, I could do no more than look on, for what is a man in a storm like this? Thunderbolts fell in the sea all about. Up to this time, I was bound for New York, but when all was over, I rose, made sail, and hove the sloop round from starboard to port tack to make for a quiet harbor. He sailed all the next day, And when the sun rose on the day after that, the spray was safe and sound in Newport Harbor, having covered over 46,000 miles in three years, two months, and two days. The Boston Globe noted, The spray, Captain Joshua Slocum of Boston, came into Newport Harbor at 3.30 this morning. Tonight, she and her gallant skipper were visited by hundreds. Tomorrow, or the next day, the spray will go to Boston. Whence it sailed April 24, 1895. Captain Slocum's first thought upon reaching Newport was of his wife, and he wired her at once. Mrs. Slocum is expected tomorrow. Three times she has thought him dead. Therefore, he eagerly looks forward to his reunion with her. His arrival after over three years away received surprisingly little press coverage especially considering all the stories that Captain Slocum had filed from ports around the world. He was bumped off the front pages for the same reason that the spray had to dodge mines on the way into Newport Harbor. The Spanish-American War had just begun. Nonetheless, he got a telegraph the next day offering to publish the story that eventually became the book Sailing Alone Around the World, as a serial at first in Century Magazine. In the closing paragraphs of that resulting book, the captain wrote, The spray was not quite satisfied till I sailed her around to her birthplace, Fairhaven, Massachusetts, further along. So on July 3rd, with a fair wind, she waltzed beautifully round the coast and up the Acushionate River to Fairhaven, where I secured her to the cedar spile driven in the bank to hold her when she was launched. In his biography, Walter Magnus Teller describes this homecoming. Soon after Slocum arrived in Fairhaven, he received a visit from Victor and Garfield. The former mate was now 26, Garfield 15. Victor wrote that his father greeted him, Vic, you could have done it, but you would not be the first. Even before the book was published, Captain Slocum began making a tidy living by exhibiting the spray and giving lectures about his adventures in venues all over the Boston area. Joshua and Hetty moved in with one of Hetty's sisters at 57 West Eagle Street in Eastie, where the captain got busy writing. Teller quotes a letter to his editor on January 30th, 1899, that says, This is to report the spray. My typewriter and I are working along around Cape Horn now, and we'll soon have some work ready to submit. Sailing Alone Around the World was published in 1899, receiving high praise and selling briskly. In 1901, he took the spray to the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, Ray was highly compensated and received lots of great publicity for the book. After the royalty checks started rolling in, Joshua and Hetty Slocum moved out of East Boston and bought a farm on Martha's Vineyard, but they began drifting apart. Even after his three-year solo voyage, Joshua Slocum wasn't done with the sea. Before long, he was basically living on the spray making friends with President Teddy Roosevelt teaching TR's young son Archie how to sail, finding new cities to deliver his riveting lecture in for a small fee, and wintering in the Caribbean most years. Hetty declined to join him. Finally, one winter he didn't come back. In July 1910, Hetty told the Boston Globe, I believe beyond all doubt that Captain Slocum is lost. He sailed November 12, 1908, going south for the sake of his health. I had often accompanied him on short voyages, but I did not like to go on so long a voyage, although he desired it. We expected to hear from him when he reached the Bahamas, and always made a point of keeping his publishers informed. Neither of us has received word, and the steamship companies that run to the Bahamas have no tidings beyond their report a few days after his sailing. In 1911, as the anniversary of the Spray's departure from Boston approached, the Globe reported on April 17th, Captain Joshua Slocum, who could truthfully boast that in 20 years as a navigator, he never lost a man, has succeeded in losing himself. All trace of the intrepid mariner having failed since he set sail in 1908 for a trip to the West Indies in the Sloop Spray. No word from the captain has ever reached home. And his wife, who resides at West Tisbury, has at last yielded to the belief that he has perished, probably in a midnight collision between some steamer and his little craft. In 1914, Hetty married a vineyard banker, and she outlived him as well, dying in West Tisbury on October 18, 1952. To learn more about Joshua Slocum's first solo circumnavigation of the globe, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 248. I'll have a number of photos and sketches that were reproduced in period newspapers and in Slocum's memoir, Sailing Alone Around the World. I'll link to all the news accounts that I quoted from in this episode, as well as the text of Sailing Alone Around the World and The Voyage of the Liberdade both of which are in the public domain. I'll also link to Walter Magnus Teller's biography of Slocum that I quoted from so liberally, which is not in the public domain. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. A good number of you listen on Spotify, and Spotify just added ratings for podcasts. So if you want to give us a five-star rating in the Spotify app, that'd be terrific too. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.